The Women of Color STEM Conference presents Organizational Politics from Venus, Developing Power and Influence from a Woman's Perspective, a professional development seminar featuring founder of the Above Average School, Terry Williams, Vice President of Global Quality for Meritor Inc., Linda Taliaferro, and Acting Director of the Office of Diversity and Leadership for the U.S. Army Materiel Command, Paula Taylor. Do you know why women are not sitting at the leadership tables in your organization? Have you ever thought that, if given the opportunity, you could help make your organization better? Many professional women have reported feeling left out of key decisions or impacted by the politics that lessen their contributions. At the same time, several top women executives who continue to excel say you must learn to understand, rise above, and effectively use politics to get things done. In her book, Lean In, Women, Work, and the Will to Lead, COO of Facebook, Sheryl Sandberg encourages women to promote themselves in order to achieve professional advancement. This session is part two of a two-part series that will help women to address the best methods of navigating organizational politics from the all-female panel's perspective. Without further ado, the Women of Color STEM Conference presents Organizational Politics from Venus, Developing Power and Influence from a Women's Perspective, a professional development seminar. Featuring Terry Williams, Linda Taliaferro, and Paula Taylor. Okay, greetings everyone. How's everybody doing this afternoon? Are you enjoying the conference? Excellent, excellent. We're going to keep that going. So I have the pleasure of joining these two wonderful ladies to my left. And what we're going to do to open this discussion, and we will be talking about, just to remind you, uh, organizational politics from a Venus perspective. I think, was it yesterday? They had it from a Mars perspective, I believe. And so today we're going to tell you what the women think about organizational politics. So we'll introduce ourselves, and then I'm going to open it up for discussion triggered by questions. But if any of you in the audience have a question, please don't hesitate, raise your hand so we can get some good discussion going on and make sure we have some excellent learnings before we leave here today, okay? All right, so with that, I'll introduce myself first. My name is Linda Talaferro. I'm currently the Vice President of Global Quality at Meritor Incorporated. Our headquarters is located here in Troy, Michigan, and we are suppliers of braking and suspension components for commercial vehicles, industrial vehicles, military vehicles, and other specialty vehicles. I have about 40 sites around the world that I'm responsible for assuring that we meet or exceed our customer expectations and that our products are both reliable and of the utmost in quality when they hit the field. If I can go to my left and start with you, Terry, which you can introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Terry Williams. I'm here representing the United States Army. I'm a retired United States Army soldier. I'm also a retired Department of Defense civilian, and I am currently a, an executive coach. Uh, I founded my own organization, and in about a week, I'll embark on my fourth career, which I'll be the chief learning officer for a county in Virginia. All right, good afternoon. I'm Paula Taylor. Uh, I'm the director for the Office of Diversity and Leadership for the United States Army Materiel Command. 
Uh, that's a four-star headquarters uh, station out of, uh, we're located in Huntsville, Alabama, Redstone Arsenal. And I, I'm gonna give you a little of my background because you can understand my, my answers, you can understand where I come from. So I was born and raised in a place called, called Vicksburg, Mississippi. I'm the youngest of seven siblings. My father uh, was a civil servant and a military, uh, he was in the military, in the reserves, and my mom was a homemaker and she worked in the cafeteria for, uh, until all of her children got through grade school. She wanted, that's her way of surveillance <laughs> and monitoring her kids. <laughs> and so I come from a strong background of military for my father and uh, my godmom who really, really kind of raised me. We lived in this little, this little street called Hannah and it's Vicksburg, we, you know, if, I, if you ever watched The Heat of the Night, they had the bottoms. We were near the bottoms. We weren't in the bottoms, but we were near the bottoms. So the community pretty much raised us, okay? Every, every mother, every anybody in the neighborhood could discipline you. So I have that background of being disciplined by a, a neighborhood of about uh, 10 or 15 different families. Uh, okay, I, after graduating from high school, I went to Jackson State University where I got my uh, my master's, I mean, my bachelor's degree in business, but I got commissioned in ROTC. So that's how I got into the military, but I met my husband of 35 years there. <laughs> so we both are war veterans, uh, both retired military, and we have two sons, adult sons, Corey and Kyle, and I have my first granddaughter. Her name is Miss Kendall May Taylor. And so you understand that, you know, I'm kind of, I have a spectrum, a war veteran, uh, left my son when he was uh, newborn to serve in Desert Shield, Desert Storm. Uh, so I'm, I'm really, really strong, but I'm really, really weak. <laughs> so I have to be that in every scenario. I have to manage the scenario to see which one I got to be that day. So with that being said, I just look forward to entertaining any questions or giving you any advice that we might have to share. Thank you. Thank you, Paula. And with that, if we could express our depth of appreciation for these ladies' service to our country, would appreciate that. And Terry, you and I have something also in common. Uh, two years ago, I started an executive career advisory firm as well called the T, the Extra Effort, where I do that. Uh, when I don't know when I have time outside of my nine to five, but it's truly a passion, and I share that with you in helping women get a seat at the table. So with that, let's, I'm going to open it up with what might sound like a fundamental question, but I think it's one uh, worth exploring uh, to make sure we are all kind of at the same place for this discussion. And so, um, Terry, if I could start with you, what is your definition of organizational politics? Okay, that's a good one. Um, so I think that organizational politics, um, I have to revert back to a, a, a instructor I had at Georgetown and he would always say, if you're gonna play baseball, you have to understand the playing field. You gotta understand what's on how to get to first, how to get to second, how to get to third, and then you know how to come home. But also what's important is what's in between, right? There's things that happen in between the bases that allow you to be successful to go on to the next base. So um, in my career, I have um, probably not intentional, but it, it wound up being this way. I've, in the military, I had service, you know, the Army, you're assigned all over the place. So I was in Louisiana, and I'm originally from Detroit. I grew up right here, went to high school here, and my aspiration was to be a teacher, 
an educator right over there at Wayne State um, College University. And, you know, in hindsight, when I think about that, you know, that was this big, but that was enough to satisfy me. And how was I going to get there? I didn't, my family didn't have enough money to send me to college, and so the Army was, was why I originally joined. And when I got in the Army, you know, we talk about mentors and sponsors and coaches. All of that is built into the foundation of an Army leader. And so whether I wanted it or not, I got that when I became a member of the Army, and I became a better person for it. So I learned agility, and I think that's very, very important when you're talking about politics, because there's a lot of unwritten rules that you're going to have to know in order to survive. Mm -hmm. And you're not, there's no book on this, you know, whatever organization you go to, there's not a book about politics that's written. It's really about um, how you maneuver and how you survive. Mm -hmm. And in doing that, I think the, the best piece of knowledge, which I probably got from my family, I'm from a very large family, my mother had 12 siblings, my father had nine siblings, so everything was like a family meeting all the time. But getting along with people and understanding you have a role as a leader, but you also have a role as a follower. And in order, when you talk about development, you talk about being a follower. You can't be a leader all the time. You have to listen. And you have to know where to go for good advice so that you can um, develop your agility. And so going from organization to organization from the Army, I went to work in the executive branch of the government. I worked at DOD. I worked at FAA. I worked at um, oh the intelligence community. And all of those, none of that was a cookie-cutter mode of how to get along in the organization. I almost had to start all over again with understanding how to succeed and how to be successful in each one of those. And I, the only way I was ever able to achieve any sort of uh, success was networking, collaborating, getting along with people, getting to know people. And I would also say I take probably two lessons from our past first ladies. Eleanor Roosevelt, her phrase with be useful. Whatever job you go into, see where you can be useful to that team or be useful to that group, and you will find some success. Because it really is about pushing up your sleeves and doing a good job. And then the second one I think I take from, in, you know, in the same area, which I call pull from the past to understand, is um, from a, Michelle Obama. And you know, in her book, she writes about having three friends, having a friend that's older than you, having a friend that's at your age, and then having a friend that's behind you, right? So you need someone that's older and mature. So this is kind of the president's circle that, you know, your board of directors that we've been hearing about. Um, but you have to be careful with that because you can't just pick people that like you. You've got to get some good feedback, and you've got to be able to uh, be agile in what they tell you. So I would say that um, politics is about agility, and, it's a, and that's about change. And the more that you can be uh, agile and be willing to move and do things and make contributions, that will make you more political. And, and I'm going to offer a corporate uh, perspective, and then we'll go to Paula uh, and get hers as well. So I have over 30 years of, ex of experience in corporate America be it um, through past cars, so BMW, and then uh, tier one suppliers like Bosch and so forth, and now in the commercial industry. 
And what I have found over my 30-year career is, um, as most of you may think, when you hear the word politics, it tends to have a negative connotation, right? I mean, you think of it as these dirty games, it's you know stuff that people do to get ahead on top of others. But what I have found is that fundamentally, organizational politics is just the way things get done. It's fundamentally just how things get done. Terry alluded to that in her description and her experience at the military and her baseball analogy. How do you get from first base to second to third to home? That really is organizational politics. And it's very critical in order to know how things get done is to build those relationships so that you can get the information of the, the sand that's in between the bases, the secret sauce that gets you from one place to the next, you get that through relationships. You get that through making sure that you have a strong internal network. How do you do that? Everything Terry just shared. Getting along with others, collaborating, raising your hand, being open for constructive feedback. So yes, being liked is important because you want to build trust so that people bring you into their circle. But at the same time, those individuals that may be somewhat challenging, you want them around as well. Because no man's an island, we all haven't arrived, we have things we can learn and grow from, and that constructive criticism is extremely important as you strengthen yourself in order to move, whether it's sideways on the ladder or up the ladder. But fundamentally, if you have that perception, because I did early in my career in the 80s, I didn't want to play it. I said I came to work, I didn't come to work to make friends, keep my head down, I'm not playing politics, right? And I was stuck for a long period of time till I understood that I needed to get in the game. And there's a way to get in the game to be and be authentic, hold your integrity, understand the rules, play them at the fullest so that you can then be successful. So I would, you know, if you had that same mentality I had when I was a young engineer, I would, I would, I would implore you to think differently. It's just how things get done. And if you don't understand how they get done, they're most likely gonna get done without you, right? I mean, it's fundamentally how that's gonna happen. They'll get done without you. And when those conversations are being happened in the room and you don't have that network, those advocators when you're not in the room, people are not gonna think of you when those opportunities come for that next initiative, that next uh, promotion, whatever it may be. So I'd like to just add a little bit from what Terry said was great from the Army perspective, and really doesn't, there's, as you can listen to me, there's really not much difference between the Army or corporate America. They are businesses. They're, things have to get done. People are there. People are there in different levels of responsibility, and how you, how you maneuver that is extremely important. And one last thing before I move on to Paula, something Terry said I think was extremely valuable. When you're creating your network, like I have a powerful network at Meritor, everybody in my network's not at my level. Everybody in my network's not above me. I've got some people in my network that may have just started younger than me. There are purposes and reasons for that, right? You have to have various people at different levels within your network. There's a whole heck of a lot of stuff I learned from those young millennials coming in the door that are moving up fast. Me, a baby boomer, I'm learning a lot and they help keep me on my toes, and therefore I perform at a higher level. And those people who have been there, done that, at Meritor, it's got a 100-year history. People that have been there for 30, 40 years, yet more that I can learn. And those people usually have the ear of somebody, therefore they like Linda, 
when I'm not in the room, they're going to advocate for me. So I think that was excellent advice when Terry said, when you create your network, make sure it's a, a diverse one. Paula, anything to add? Well, not much. Every, uh, everything was captured so well. Um, but I just, you know, being military most of my life, and then um, we were forced to, as officers coming in, we were forced to be, uh, to be social. We, we were forced to join the officers club. You were, you were forced to socialize. And so I, I think that kind of had a negative connotation after I'd gone, gotten a little mature and a little older. But I, I, one thing I, I will not do, I, and I will not uh, jeopardize my integrity. I understand that the mission is the most important thing, the successful accomplishment of the mission. Own what the company, the, own the organization. You have to have pride in whatever you, you do. And, and so if you are the biggest cheerleader, the biggest advocate for your organization, I think that speaks volumes. Because eventually, whoever is in the position to do great things for you, they're going to hear. Don't, don't get rid of negativity. If you're a part of that organization, uh, you've got to be in a trip, you've got to contribute to success. Don't hang with people who complain all the time or who talks about the boss. Uh, who does things like that. So always attract, get, get yourself linked up with people who are in the place where you desire to be. You know, if you want to be a millionaire, you got to hang with millionaires. So, so that's the same uh, philosophy I have on the job. I walk along a lot because I am in the field of EEO, diversity and leadership. I walk along my team. They, don't, they do not socialize with people inside the, the organization because we have to be uh, very, we have to have the appearance of being discreet about things. We can't uh, hang with other people because people are coming to us for advice and for help. And so, you know, I, I kind of adjust to whatever the mission is. And I know who, uh, you know, I work for a four-star general, so he's automatically the boss. Whatever he says goes. And a lot of, a lot of young people coming in, <laughs> They don't get it. If you have not served in the military, you don't understand the, the rank structure. Uh, a general is different than a CEO. What I mean is when he says do something, you have to do it. You can choose not to do it with a CEO. So I can't choose not to do it with my general. And so it's all, and you, and it's all about your attitude, staying positive, being, being part of the team, not, not, not doing anything neg negatively to take away from the image of the organization and the, and the leadership that you're representing. Um, like again, I say, don't lose your integrity. Stay true to who you are. Stay true to the fact that you are a female, you're a woman. God created you as a woman. Uh, you don't have to go and act like a man. You can be a nurturer, but you be a nurturer and when it's time to be one. You can have emotions, but don't let your emotions uh, uh, kill the organization or kill what you're trying to do. Don't hold grudges. Uh, always stay high. And, and, and I guarantee you, if you do all of some of these things, it can contribute to, to a successful career. Just take on some of them. But I think the positive attitude is probably the best thing to do. And owning your organization and being the biggest cheerleader and advocate for what you do. And don't take, don't take the team down. Always uh, pick them up and say the best about your organization and own it. I guess that's all I have to say. Yeah, I'd like to continue on that discussion, of Paula, and that topic that you just mentioned. My next question was going to be, Terry, I know you mentioned agility already, 
but what would be uh, one or two other traits or skills you think is really critical to Paula's point for a woman, in, whether it be the Army, whether it be corporate America, wherever it is, in order to successfully navigate organizational politics? Um, so earlier I was telling Paula this story, and it was a huge discovery point for me in my career. Um, probably 15 years ago, I had the opportunity to go through the Senior Executive Candidate Development Program. And in that program, they give you like 10 to 15 assessments. And there was one assessment called the FIRO B that they use, which judged your, um, a, your need for, uh, your expressed need for inclusiveness, right? And so when I saw my scores, I had to go over it with my executive coach, and I was like, oh my God. And talking about from where you come from, like, oh my God, I need, I need to be visible, I need to be needed, that's not me. And I interpreted it as very um, negative. And so my coach said, well listen, let's talk about this because your numbers are very high. And I've never seen any numbers quite this high. So then I was like, okay. And so she said, um, so let's talk about when you walk in a room. And let's say you're going to a conference. What happens when you walk in the room? And I said, well, usually I scan the room and I look for someone that looks like me. Mm. And I said, mm. from a gender and a cultural perspective. Mm. And then when I find them, that's where I go to sit. And so when I enter a room, and it's a business room, I'm seeking comfort. And so she said, well, mm. is that really what you should be doing? Because when I go and look at your scores on emotional intelligence, people said that you seem quiet, you seem aloof, you don't seem engaged. And so I said, well, that certainly isn't the intent of what I want to show. And so she says, well, think about, you know, why are you doing that? Why are you showing up? And so my thoughts were because of how I entered the room. I entered the room for comfort. I didn't enter the room, that, this was 2004, I didn't enter the room with my business hat on. Because with my business hat on, I understand I need to connect. I need collaboration. I need to make friends. I need to show yes. people I, I'm a team member and I can get along. And so, I mean, that was an excellent thing that, ha and it was, you know, my own self-awareness. I didn't know that I showed up that way until I looked at that test and I discussed it with my executive coach. So then after that, my strategy was, I'm not going to sit with people that just look like me. I'm not going to sit with just women. And I didn't think I was bad in this area until I saw, you know, the test score, which was part of self-awareness. Mm -hmm. And so that idea of understanding who you are, and when I really began to dig down, you know, with that, in, in the coaching world, we call that a disempowering belief, right? There was something there that made, that didn't, it didn't make me comfortable, but I was just more comfortable sitting with women who look like me. But that wasn't pushing my agenda with the decision makers because the decision makers were not people who looked like me. So I needed to connect. And what better time, I mean, that's the whole purpose of meetings and conferences and things like that. But I didn't realize, I mean, I didn't realize that I was doing something that was directly against my ability mm -hmm. to connect with people. And I wasn't capitalizing on that time. Yeah, powerful, powerful. So I'm gonna add to that because that, that is exactly to me what is foundational to success in organizational politics, and that is knowing who you are. So if you're not familiar with where your emotional intelligence is or 
this is the first time you're hearing it, I highly recommend you go get a book. It's an e Emotional Intelligence 2.0. It's a quick read. It's got a free assessment in it. And you can get a view of where you are in social management, relationship management, and self-management, self, your self-awareness. And then from that point, what you learn, that it also gives you little tools in there on how to improve, improve or modify wherever your gaps are. Our EQ moves and changes as our career grows, right? So what gets you in the door is your IQ. What gets you promoted is your EQ. So make sure you focus and work on that. To me, that is one of the fundamental traits in making sure that you're successful. Another one that I would add is what I like to call your unique persona or your UP. Some people call it your personal brand, right? Who are you as an individual? What do you represent? What do you want to stand for? What do you want to be known as or known for? What are your non-negotiables? Where I work at Meritor, people know what Linda's non-negotiables are. It's very, I make it very clear. And then what, what difference, how do you set yourself apart? What do you bring to the table nobody else does? Who do you hang around? Paula, what Paula mentioned earlier, that's part of your unique persona. Everybody that comes with you can't go with you. Okay, so you have to change who you hang around in order to meet your career aspirations and goals. And you can do that, as Paula so eloquently put, without compromising your integrity. Doesn't change who you are fundamentally as a person. But you do have to look left and right and determine if those individuals in your circle, be it at work or outside of work, are part of getting you to that next level, whatever that may be for you in your career. So those are two areas I would highly recommend you take a look at and deep dive into your emotional intelligence and your UP or your unique persona and level them both up. Okay, Paula, you want to add anything? No. Um, I was just thinking about um, in the business that I'm in, so you're looking at officer diversity leadership and the equal employment opportunity arena. And a lot of people, um, when they think about EEO, and I like to say equal employment opportunity because you can put it in perspective when you hear everyone wants equal employment opportunity. Uh, it, has been, it has taken on negative connotations throughout the years, since the 60s or whatever. You know, we've morphed into what we are today in something that is not relevant. It is relevant, um, and it's, it's unfortunate that, you know, in that, that job, I'm not very, very popular among a lot of leaders. However, I stay, I, I stay strict, and I don't, I'm not saying by the rules and regulations. I just say basic human dignity. And so uh, when you, you have to, any job that you're going to and that you're, you are in, you have to, like you say, you have to take ownership of and you have to make sure that, number one, it's not status quo. I don't believe in status quo. If you, any of you all out there get a job and you just do what the other person did or you do what everybody has done, then you're not really doing that job uh, justice. You have to, your unique, what's that what? Unique persona. persona. Your yep. unique persona. You got to get in and make it yours. Yep. Put your signature on it. And when you walk out the door, the, your legacy will be yep. there saying that this is what you yep. did. You made changes. Mm -hmm. uh, we have now in our senior army leadership, my general is doing stuff that no one has ever done. And at first, everybody was pushing back on it because they were, he was getting them out of the norm. 
and it's not comfortable. Mm. And so when I finally realized what was going on, I said, okay, I got to get on this bandwagon. And I started being his cheerleader. And I started talking about talking to, to the people. When people come to me and they're saying things about the leadership or saying things that's negative, I always get them on the positive side. I stay away from the, the critical uh, uh, things that can take away from the organization, keeping them out of the limelight, having little small conflict resolution gatherings where people can get together and talk versus making this thing bigger than life. Okay, so my signature is going to be I did something to change equal employment opportunity operations. Okay, so anything that you get, anything that you're a part of, you got to put your spin on it because guess what? Somebody, and I say God, I don't want to offend anyone if they're not, don't, don't believe in, in God like I do, but God put you there for a reason. There's no one else in this world who can do the job that God has set you there to do. So if you do have a relationship, don't fail God. Go in there and be who God made you to be, who your parents raised you to be. Like I said, don't jeopardize your integrity, but you have to put a spin on it. Because you don't want to go to a job every day and not make a difference. Every day we spend most of the time with our with our with our coworkers yes. and we spend with our families. Yes. So you go there and you and you take whatever you do, you take it up, take it to the sky. There's no limitation. I don't have a budget. But I, but my little team and I, we I call us the Gideons, the Gideon Knights, or however you want to call it. It's, we are doing more than a whole office of, of 30 people, and it's making a difference. And when, you're, when my boss is, we don't talk much because I figure I'm too, I'm, I'm minor for him, you know, because he shouldn't, he shouldn't even worry about this kind of stuff. He sees me in the elevator, he said, Paula, press. So he just said he's pleased with what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. So That's I good. keep it on, and I keep on, I keep those leaders honest, and I keep those those employees working. Because just because your boss didn't speak to you this morning, that don't mean you can stop working. Yeah, that's right. Okay? It's good stuff. So. so out of what you've heard so far that we've talked about, before I get any, into more of my questions, does anyone have a question? Great. Hi, Victoria Moore with Consumers Energy. You talked about uh, organizational politics and learning them and not having to sacrifice yourself. Do you have any examples of uh, situations where you may have been in where you had to kind of play the game but didn't have to compromise who you are? Um, yes, I have several, uh, but I'll just share one. And this may sound very simple, but it sent a very powerful message when it was happening. So myself and another happened to be African-American woman, we were at an event, which is, it was in Nashville, Tennessee, the previous company I was working with at the time would hold their Six Sigma events there, where we would give out awards for, from teams from around the world and their accomplishments, impacts that they've made in reducing variation, saving money, whatever it is. So we had had a fabulous day, right, and a lot of awards. So as I would always do, if the groups would go out somewhere, I would go, right, so I'd pop in, and in Nashville, there was these bars. So we happened to walk in. Her name was Keisha. She and I walked in, and there was a huge group of people from that company. And so we walked in. We greeted everybody. And she and I had already said, OK, if it goes left or right, we look at each other, we nod, we're out, right? And so and we knew what that meant, OK? And so we went in. And actually, a song came on. And she and I said, oh, you know, and we started moving a little bit. As soon as we did that, I saw cameras come out. I saw people coming towards me. She looked at me. I looked at her, and I was like, yep, 
through the door, I'm out. I'm not, you know, I'm not going to put myself in the position of the wrong picture, the wrong anything, the wrong interpretation. Didn't offend anyone. Everybody's like, oh, why are you leaving? Oh, tired. You know, we're going to go catch the bus. It's midnight. Got an early morning. Gone. Right? So that was one where I draw a line. And I will go. I, you will all, people at Meritor will see me at events. I might show up. I might be there for 15, 20, 30 minutes, mingled around in the crowd, numerous people saw me, I may have had a cocktail, and I'm out, okay? But I know how to maneuver that. That's part of playing the game and still being true to who Linda Talaferro is, right? Irrespective of any environment I'm in. I've, I've had the same situation happen at people's homes, invited to a boss party, drinking, taking pictures, Wanted me to do that. My husband happened to be there. You know what he said? I'll take the drink for her. Right? He didn't work there. They were disappointed because the shot wasn't worth anything. Right? The picture wasn't worth anything because it wasn't me. And I politely, after 45 minutes or so of seeing that, we excused ourselves out of that boss's home. I'm out. So that's my example of making sure you hold your integrity, but still playing the game. I was present, right? I was there. So that's that's one I I could keep talking. There's tons of them. Any other examples? I, I have one. This is um, when I was in the military, this is the story that just popped in my mind, and this was the 90s. So I was working in the Pentagon, which was my dream job, and um, my husband and I had decided to have a child. And then I got pregnant. It was like, okay, yes, we're going to do it. Yes, and now I'm pregnant. So I came to work in that big green um, top <laughs> and the, in the skirt, and I remember walking down the hallway, and it was during lunchtime, and a, like the second highest ranking person in the Army, the civilian, stopped in the hallway, and I worked on the senior staff and said, I have told you, I don't know what you all are doing, but I've told you, you can't have it all. Now, here you are, you done went and got knocked up. This was in 1991. And I just stopped, and I looked. You know, I had to give myself some back support. And I said, now, and he walked off. I said, now, he has pissed me off, okay? And I'm going to show him what pregnant women can do. And... I was very nervous when I got pregnant because rules weren't as nice as they are today for pregnant women. I had honestly never held a baby until I had my own baby. I had never babysat for anyone. I was just like the aunt that, you know, brings the gifts. I'm, I can't be babysitting for anybody. So, so this really pissed me off. And so I then began to examine, because my organization was good to me. They were nice. They were accommodating. I, ha I had women in my office that were supportive. They had had children. But I realized that the Army had a problem because if the leader at that time, who, was, who had been on active duty at one time, and he wasn't on active duty, could say this to me in an open environment, and it wasn't a joke, then I said, I'm going to be an advocate for women that are pregnant, and I'm going to bring up issues that are hard for us to deal with. And so I felt like at one time I was going to hide, you know, just kind of be quiet and get through my pregnancy. But then I, he, you know, he ignited a fire. 
And I didn't want anyone to ever have to feel like I felt that day in the hallway. And so I joined every group. <laughs> I advocated. I told people I wore that uniform proudly. And things did get better. But I was so shocked that here it was, 1991, and a person is actually saying this to me. So. Wow. Any other questions? Let me give, let me give a small Oh, absolutely. Go ahead, Paula. No problem. This happened to me very recently. I, you know, of course, again, I told you I work with generals and, and, and senior executive service members. So just working with a, a general was my boss, and uh, he came and asked me to do something uh, to another employee, like uh, send this employee back to his organization. The employee was with me for on a, like a temporary assignment, like a training assignment. And the, the person had only been there for, with me for two months. And they did not care for him and his tactics. And so they wanted me to send him back, and I, I refused. And, and I took a bullet for it. I, I, no, I'm not going to uh, send him back. I say, his, his boss can ask him to come back or you all can send them back, but I'm not doing it. So I refuse to be part of that office politics. Mm -hmm. Many other leaders were involved in that. When that general came and talked to me to ask me to do that, other senior leaders was back, were backing him. Of course, my big boss was not. He was not aware of it. However, I didn't tell anyone. I, t I told the general. He came to my office, and he, he even had a counseling statement with him. For he was going to give me a counseling statement. I was like, sir, I mean, number one, you can keep that. Uh, you don't even have to read it. Me, because I don't agree with it. And I'm not sending this individual back. You can send him back. You all have more power and authority. But I did not buckle down. But many other senior leaders did. And, and, right in the, and to me, I kept my maintain my, my integrity. I'm still part of it. I'm still part of the, the dream team within the command. But uh, I don't. I don't bow, and I don't. I'm not going to mistreat another individual because the boss says so. You're listening to organizational politics from Venus, developing power and influence from a woman's perspective, a professional development seminar, featuring Terry Williams, Linda Taliaferro, and Paula Taylor. Brought to you by the Women of Color STEM Conference, uniting women in STEM by continuing the press for progress. Be sure to check out our social media pages on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Excellent, excellent examples. Any other questions? Hi, um, my question for you guys is, as female leaders, what would you say was the most significant obstacle in your careers? Um, the, when, I, when I retired from the military, it was 1997, I took advantage of the early out program. And so I transitioned over to, I worked for a, a corporation first that was in healthcare, and then I worked um, as a civil servant. So moving from the military culture to a civilian culture was the exact opposite. And um, I had to really figure out the in-between the basis stuff. And I had to figure out that there was a lot of built-in cultural things that I didn't have to worry about in the military that in the civilian sector you do have to worry about. I would even say that um, understanding relationships and understanding, which I call understanding the playing field, and understanding that it doesn't take a lot 
it could be a 10 minute acknowledgement of someone just to say hi and to bring up small talk with them. But one of the things, you know, I've always prided myself in being a hard worker and being willing to push up my sleeves and do the work. And what I've learned is it's not about the work a lot of times. It is about, number one, do you fit into this team? And I don't even like that word fit because it sounds like conformity. But, you know, you have to understand the game to change the game. So you, got, you, you have to at least yes. be wanted by the team so that, you know, they can see, you know, the value. So that's to my point about being useful. And um, so, you know, it's very different in the civilian culture, and it's a whole lot of stuff that's not seen. And so I think one of the things that's been helpful is I'm always willing to at least, whatever the development program is, whatever the hard assignment is, I know that I'm going to have to sacrifice, and I've, I've done it all. I've worked since I was for 40 years, and I've had a child, I've been a working mom, and I've, you know, been able to balance all of that. I mean, I've had my child at work with me, and it, you know that's part of who I am. And so if I can understand the culture, if I can understand the playing field, which don't give yourself, and I, and I probably used to do this, okay, I'm gonna give myself 90 days and I should be doing this. Like, I always had a timeline for everything. <laughs> and, but I didn't really give a lot of credit to the relationships, yes. give enough time yes. to building that. And so what I tell my, some of my clients today is you, got, you have to have a social map. Yeah. Like you have to understand who the key players and who the decision makers are. And it's easy when you map that out. Then you can see how much work you have to do. Because yeah. if you just keep it up in your mind, you may miss an opportunity. And, and, and my husband here, he knows that I was always known for I've got time. Don't worry about it. I've got time. Mm -hmm. And when I look back, I passed up many opportunities by thinking my good hard work yeah. will allow me to get there. Yeah. Um, there was a study done in 2012 by the Center for Talent Innovation on executive yes. presence, yes. and we yes. all have heard of, of the study. But the biggest piece of that study is the data, which shows that 74% of success is attributed to your work, technical skills. Yeah. 26% is attributed to executive presence, which is how you do your work, your behavior. So you can sit there and be a mad genius, nobody like you, and you won't go any further than that little cubicle. So you have to have that other 26%. And, and you know, it doesn't sound like it's hard to do because obviously, you know, get your master's and, you know, all of this hard stuff that you have to do academically, but there's structure in that. But that 26% that you have to work on, there's no structure to that. You have to create the structure for that. And you have to, like I said, when I had taken, and I was so grateful back then that they gave us all those assessments because it was really a look in the mirror at myself. And I had to decide, am I going to change this? Or I didn't even realize that was a problem. Well, what am I going to do about that? I got to get to this person because they're the ones who decide on all the bonuses or this is the person who listens like you have to see all of that mapped out to see how much work needs to be done because you do only get a small amount of seconds not minutes seconds to make a good impression on someone and it's not about an elevator speech it's about like they they want to see you in action so excellent advice here excellent advice you know the um 
I mentioned earlier, what Terry mentioned is the that IQ gets you in the door, EQ is what gets you promoted. And that's what's foundational to what Terry's talking about in executive presence. So I often tell my clients when, in my business that I have on the side that you can work extremely hard all day long and think your work product is enough. Because I've had them tell me all the time, well, Linda, I'm good at what I do. I'm the bomb at what I do. And I'm like, okay, that's why they hired you. I mean, it's just, it's just bottom line, really, that's why you got in the door. But that's just not enough to get you to the next level, whether it's in the Army, military, any, any branch of it. It's not enough in corporate America, for sure. But how you show up every day. So executive presence has three components, gravitas, communication, and appearance. Appearance is 5%. Communication is about 20-some-odd percent, 25. But gravitas is over 60% of what makes up executive presence. And gravitas is how do you handle grace under fire? Can you be poised in conflict management? When you walk in the room, when I walk in the room, I always sit at the head of the table. I just, that's just where I sit. I like to be able to see everybody. I like to be able to read body languages. And I want to make sure that people don't have to look around the corner to see me, right? You don't have to look around anyone to see me. I'm right here. I've always done that for, for years once I got over not working hard. But it's so important to understand that piece. It, it, working hard clearly, Terry, totally agree, will not be enough for you. And you're going to have to do the extra work. You're going to have to put in the time. And when she mentioned strategic, I know for me, when I started at Meritor, I spent my first eight months of my first year doing nothing but building relationships. I didn't make a single decision in eight months. Now, I knew. I had 30 years of experience. I knew what, I, what needed to be done. I knew what I thought would move the needle. But what I, re, what I remembered from my previous experience, and every organization is different, what I picked up really quickly at Meritor is you get nothing done unless you have a relationship. Nothing. Initiatives don't move forward. I mean, you can be in there spinning your wheels. If people don't like you, they don't trust you, you get nothing done. Our CEO even does makes decisions in what he calls an XCOM, an executive committee. It's a committee. So relationships, a plural of thought. So what did I do? I spent time building relationships, strategically picked out, paid attention. Who has whose ear? Who is the baller, shot caller? Not all of them are obvious on the org chart. So it doesn't matter where the boxes are sometimes made the difference for me in just a short five years at Meritor. But to answer the young lady's question, what I'm going to share before I turn it over to Paula, one specific thing that happened to me happened when I was a young engineer working at, I can mention the division now because it's closed, it's Delco Moraine in Dayton, Ohio, division of GM. And I experienced sexual harassment from a GM. Now I was only there two years, fresh out of college, Carnegie Mellon in there with my head down, working hard, you know, because I, at her point, I got, I thought I got that right degree. So I'm in there, and I would go to Vic Tanny. Now, Vic Tanny doesn't exist anymore, but I would, <laughs> I would go work out at Vic Tanny. He was there. And you know me, I'm young, and hi, how you doing? Good to see you. Then we have a meeting, a bunch of men in the room, and he's sharing with them his thoughts about me and my leotard. They saw me on Saturday. Or 
other comments. Everybody laughs, thinks it's funny, right? I'm presenting. That happened for months. And I had a gentleman that had been at that division for a while. His name's Jim Menifee. I'll never forget it. There's certain people in my career I'll never forget. I was like, Jim, I'm very uncomfortable. I actually ran into him outside of work, too. He was drunk. I was dating someone. He came to the deal. It was just a mess. But he was a GM. I'm an engineer. I'm thinking there's no way in the world. You know, I'm a young African-American woman. That, they're going to walk me to the door. But Jim told me, he says, Linda, he said, you need to report him. It's wrong. Fundamentally, it's wrong. So I did what my mother always told me to do, you know, is believe in myself, stand up, do what's right. If, if you do get walked through the door, it's not the place you want to be at anyway. So I reported him. Long story short, I didn't get walked through the door. He got moved. He had to, he had to apologize, and he was moved. It was a career guy, high level at GM. What I learned on that, when that happened to me, what I learned immediately is that my voice mattered, that I have a voice but I got to use it, that I am worth it. I make the difference. I am present, but I have to use my voice. I don't, I think someone said, Paula did, about cowering down. That, from that point on, and that was back in 1986, I'll never forget it. From that point on, I don't know, I don't know what it's like to cower down or to not be able to say no or to stand up for something or to make a point or to have to handle a difficult situation and do it with poise, with executive presence. So that was the defining time for me, was back in 1986. It gave me my voice. So, Paula, did you have anything you wanted to share? Well, just to add, um, um, I was, of course, in the military, and back, you can go back as far as, you hear a lot of testimonies now, people are in Congress, females in Congress, or whatever, that was sexually harassed. And um, I can tell you probably the majority of females who was back in the military back then that we were sexually harassed. The, op the obstacle uh, that, that we had to overcome is that even though I was, and I wasn't as bold as um, uh, First Linda, Linda um, but I had to, I, my, my battalion commander, I was a company commander, my battalion commander sexually harassed me. At the time back when I was uh, um, back then in the 90s, 80s and 90s, it just wasn't, um, women didn't come forth. They didn't come forth. Uh, my, my, you know, it wasn't a physical thing, it was just some actions that he did. And it was very degrading to, you know, it, I, I, I cried for a long time, but I stood, I stood there in front of him with, with courage, not to say anything, never reported it, told my husband, my husband wanted to make it a big deal. But by me not reporting it, you know, uh, I think it, it kind of contributed to success in my career. I'm not saying anyone should do that. Nowadays, you know, I, I would say you never, ne never allow that to happen. Never let anyone belittle you or make you seem smaller than what, what you should be. But, but I overcame that. Um, and so what, I, what I'd like to do, like to say to the young ladies here, do not do what I did. Do not. Mm -hmm. uh, stand up. And even though the politics at the time, if I had have said anything, I probably would have been uh, ostracized or probably would have gotten as far as I got within the Army and the federal government. So, but how did I, I didn't overcome that too well. But I do have the story to tell you about it uh, and for you not to. And say, Linda, she stood up. 
And uh, back in the, in the day where I was, you, you really couldn't, okay? And then another one is that I chose to go to war with, with a, uh, a newborn. I just, mm -hmm. I just had my son. He was born uh, August the 5th of uh, 1990, and everybody knew what happened then. Mm -hmm. And so I was in the infantry division, and so I felt compelled and I felt committed to go with my soldiers. And I, had, I left my son. He was six, he was six weeks. He was seven weeks old. And my, my sister-in-law kept him, kept him. However, that was a decision my, I made, me and my husband made, because back, I was a real soldier, and I was, like I said, I'm committed to what we do. You know, we, we, we said we were going to be there when it was time, when the, when the balloon went up, we were going to be there. And I just could not, not go when I had hundreds and hundreds of soldiers who I served with, young, young, uh, young soldiers going over there, and then I wouldn't be over there to protect them. So I made a choice then, and, and again, you know, hindsight being 2020, my mom, my family thought I was crazy. But, but I did sign, I, I committed to the mission of the United States Army, and, and, I, and I did it, and I thank God, I think I've been a little bit successful. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, uh, good afternoon. I'm Anu from NETA. Uh, my question is around uh, relationship building, especially somebody like me who is an introvert. Uh, how can I make efforts to build the required relationships? So I, I don't like these labels, but we have come up with extrovert and introvert, have we not? I mean, we've come up with these labels, and I think because of that, we tend to build, once we think we are those things, then we think it's not possible for us to do certain activities. So introvert, someone who just isn't very comfortable initially getting to know strangers. I mean, I just, this is what it is, but once you get to know someone, you're probably not as introverted. What I would recommend you do, and I've had numerous people ask me this question, and I actually had a, a client uh, do this at a big company that's here in, um, in Detroit, because she swore up and down she couldn't do it, and when she did it, it was not as bad. Start with someone who is probably, you don't know extremely well, but is within your circle at work. So somebody that you see. Maybe it's, um, uh, not your boss, but maybe it's another someone that you just haven't had a direct contact with on a regular basis, but you've seen them, right? So that will give you a little bit level of comfort first, so you don't have to you know, be so nervous about it. And really, it's as simple as either popping by their desk now you have to do what's in your environment. Every corporate environment's different and you'll get to know people as you do this. So for instance, at Meritor, it's not uncommon to walk past somebody's either desk, cubicle, office, if the door's open, knock on the door and say, hi, you know, do you have a few minutes? And as you're walking into the cubicle area, what I would do is I'd notice something. So I'll see a Purdue football or something. Oh, you like Purdue, you went to Purdue. I went to so-and-so have a conversation, my name is so-and-so, we'd just like to get to, you know, just talk to you for a few minutes. And most of the time, people will say, oh yeah, I have a few minutes. If they don't, they're kind enough to say, hey, do you mind if we talk tomorrow? Or if it's someone that has an admin, then they'll say, can you get my admin, get something on the calendar? But I would start with someone that doesn't because you don't want to go through that at first because you're trying to break through this uncomfortable level. And really, you find a, something common that you can relate to and you're having just a basic conversation. But what I would also fold into that conversation is maybe an idea that you have on the project. 
That way it's got some work in it, plus they're getting to know a little bit about you. So I would start with someone like that, someone that you've at least seen, you've walked past a couple times, they've spoke to you, you've spoke to them, so you've got a level of comfort. Just take the conversation a little bit further past the hello, right? And you share a little bit about yourself, and then say, oh, by the way, I know we're working together on X, Y, Z. I have this idea. I'd like to run it by you. You have some time next Friday. Then you're on the calendar. Then you, can, you, know, you continue to build. From a formal perspective, um, if it's someone higher up in the organization, that will take some work. But, you, but for some people who aren't comfortable, I usually have them work through somebody else to get an intro and then you know, go from there. But that's why I say start there. You'll find it's easy to have conversation. It's not as difficult. And you can build relationship that way. Does that make sense? Does anybody else have anything to offer? Karen? So I'm an introvert. And I am a, a long, long, but I'm married to a massive extrovert. So, no. no, no. So, um, so I've learned quite a bit from, you know, he gets up in the morning, ooh, and I'm like, oh. I just, need, I just need my little circle. Um, so I approach it from, um, as I shared earlier, you know, there's two hats. There's a comfort hat, and then there's an opportunity hat. So my comfort hat, I do not take that hat to work with me. I cannot, because if I took that hat to work with me, I would be in my office reading and just going through documentaries and doing introvert stuff. It would just be me in that room. So I realize in the opportunity that, that that is where the fruits of my labor get recognized or rewarded or I get opportunity. And so with that one on, I, became, I become a massive extrovert. Like if you, if I, who don't I talk to with that hat on? Because I realize that um, that opportunity to connect with people or, and it is really fulfilling when you talk to people and you learn a little bit more about them. But I need that extra kick to make me do it. And I always do it by, as Linda said, I go to them. You don't have to come to me, I'm gonna come to you. And I look for the first easy connection is children. Are there pictures of children in that, in their area? And I connect, and it's a genuine sense of how I feel about children. I love them. I love to hear what's going on with them. I love to hear how parents describe them. So it's an easy conversation because once you ask someone about their children, they're going to do all the talking. You don't have to do that much. And then I ask them about any hobbies or, as Linda said, you know, where did you go to school? And if you ask someone about them, again, they will wind up doing all the talking. So then it becomes a little bit easier. And then I know, um, based on things people have told me, and this one woman came to my office about 10 years ago, and she said, you know, you know, you work in the secretary's office, and I didn't want to come up here. And I said, oh, well, let's close all this up. We can go down to your office and make you comfortable. So it is about how people perceive you, and you have to figure, you have to get that from them so that you can knock out all those barriers. You know, it may not even be you. It may be, you know, where you work or what you represent or your discipline. And, and I have just found that those are opportunities for me to present the best of who I am. So. I would add, though, that some of it's rooted in being comfortable in your own skin. It's really, I think, some of it, right? You have to really be able to look in the mirror and love what you see, be comfortable with it, 
So that then pushes down some of that invertness you have that and the ability to put on the opportunity hat, right? Because not everybody can do that, right? They still have a concern with talking. But if you strengthen that value within yourself, I think it's a lot easier to put that opportunity hat on. So whatever perceptions you might have, whatever you think other people are thinking, all of that stuff, you know, that negative self-talk that tends to enter sometimes that then tells us, well, you know, maybe I can't talk to her or maybe I shouldn't or I'm an introvert, so therefore I can't, right? Uh, if you start changing that perspective, changing what you tell yourself, and being comfortable within who you are, you'll find it easier to connect. Okay, we have a question here. Hi, I'm Alexis, coach from the Boeing Company. Um, the question I had was around um, being a change agent and having um, conversations, kind of maneuvering difficult conversations with groups and individuals, especially if those groups or individuals are more inclined to lean into fragility and victimhood and you know not being able to take what needs to be heard or said. Um, can you guys talk a little bit about navigating those conversations? I mean, I'll start off by saying it's a journey. You know, when you come across people in an environment that, um, you know, in the Army, we always, we always say um, complaining is like a badge of honor, and it connects people, and it becomes a common interest enemy, right? And, um, and so to move people out of that space, that victim, being victim, being a victim is a place of comfort for them. And so the journey is to move from the victimization, which you, you know, you're not a therapist, I mean, as a, as, as, but as a leader, you, you're expected to be a coach today. And so you have to learn about these stages that people are in. And so you have to give it space. You have to give it time and you have to give it space. And sometimes just allowing people to give voice to things makes it better because people are looking for a way to connect and they're looking for a group to collaborate, collaborate with. And, you know, change is not easy, and change moves along very, very slowly. And so how you build your trust with them, uh, those deposits will come back with you seeing little signs of winning them over. But the first thing is you have to understand it's not going to be like turning on a light switch. It's not a transaction. It's going to be a journey. Mm -hmm. Paula? I guess um, when, when I have, so in, in the business I, I do, a lot, of, a lot of people come to the office as victims, and so what I try to do is figure out what are what are the strengths of those individuals, and what what are they, what is really the root cause of what's going on, and and when I figure that out, sometimes it's it's uh, the job or the particular job they're in now, or maybe they need some additional type training or education, or maybe they just need to go to a new a new a, a new supervisor and try to find a, a new place for them to be for a little while. So never ever let um, the negative part, I, I'm an advocate, my son started teaching me this, but an advocate, he said that good things attach itself to positive people. And so, and, and I believe in that. And so what I try to do is get that, that underdog mentality out of them real quick, try to get them in a position where they can, they can uh, where there, maybe there's a mentor, someone who can coach them uh, that can help, you know, walk them along this journey. Because you find it's a lot of they dealing with unknowns when you when you have complaining and you feel negative about yourself. You're dealing with a lot of unknown. You made a lot of you made a lot of stories up in your mind. You don't even know what's factual. 
So you just kind of pull that kind of stuff out of them and then get them aligned with someone who can really take care of them and, and, and mentor and nurture them to where they need to be. Because I guarantee you, it's some type of root cause there that causing that person to have that negative mindset or that complaining mindset. So pull it out. Thank you. We have another question. Hi, I'm Ranjita from NetApp. Um, the one feedback that I keep hearing, I'm a people manager. Uh, so the one feedback that I keep hearing uh, is that I become emotional sometimes, especially when I represent my team. And it comes from the place of genuine concern. Uh, it's not to mix business with emotional, nothing like that. But uh, I would want to work on that aspect. Uh, so what are your suggestions to balance this? You know, being too emotional or, you know, how do you balance that? What's the definition of emotional, though? When they say you're being emotional, what, is, what does it look like? Well, for example, during performance feedback, if somebody has done a good job and you're pitching your team, you're recognizing them, uh, and then you say that these are the things that they have done and I really feel that they deserve it, the feel word will usually it gets stacked along to being emotional or if you come across a, a little bit too pushy, you know, they probably they think that it's you're being emotional. Yeah, I thought that's what you might say. Okay, so that's usually the definition they gave women, right? Is that we're being emotional. I've been told that, you know, Linda, oh, you're so emotional. And then when I ask what it means, give me an example. It's usually something around being passionate, being forward, being res resolute, being, you know, direct which are all the things that men are, right? But, it, but because they're a little uncomfortable dealing with it, uh, you tend to get that feedback. So, and I'll turn over to my fellow um, panelists as well. For me, the way I've handled it in my career is, um, well, I, I will tell you, early on in my career, it was real, right? So I had to work on wearing my emotions on my sleeve. So I got some great feedback um, because you don't want to do that, right? I mean, there are there are lines you can cross, and I had crossed it. it was, I mean, it was just way too way too much earlier in my career. But I have, as I've grown and matured, I've gotten a balance in that. But I don't. I, the balance does not um, detract from my level of passion, the ego that I have, any of those other things that exist in the world around me that I work in. The difference is, I then turn the tables back to the people that are challenging me in that and have them help me understand what it means and how are they experiencing me in a way that's uncomfortable for them. If I feel like I can own that and work on it, I will. If it's something that they need to work on, then I let them have it in their wagon. I don't put it in mine. But I think what, what happens is you get that level of ability to do that over time when you've established trust when people believe in who you are and what you bring to the table, when you have made impactful changes, this young woman mentions. So, I, so to, you know, today, for instance, and, and for years, I haven't had to make apologies for being strong, for being direct, for being forthright, for being, you know, all those other things. And I am very passionate, as you, I mean, you can tell probably as I'm talking with my hands, every, I mean, that's just who I am, right? Uh, but people have come to be comfortable in that setting because that is who I am and I've continued to show up in that way. And it's not something that is um, uh, derogatory in any nature. And I think it's also a, a, a growth period. We have to, 
you know, we have to have the responsibility of helping educate our male counterparts. And not all of them are, you know, it's not, it's not a card botched thing, but there are just some group of men, and there's even some women. I mean, I work with some women who may believe it's over the top, right? So I think it's, you have to educate them along the way. And, and their, uh, their pace, their ability to be able to get that education. But I wouldn't change who I am. Now, if you are, you only know who you are, right? And if it's really something that you even can say, okay, come on, that was a little much, then, then sure, work on it. But if it's fundamentally everything you just said, which is what your male counterpart would do, then I think that's something that you have to help educate other people on, that there is no difference. And it's not therefore negative. And I would hold them accountable for it. I, um, before I came to work at Meritor, I was at another company, and, um, and I hadn't heard this in a long time, but he was the one that told me, he said two things. He said, one, you'll never be a vice president, which the word never was just so motivating to me. <laughs> and then he said, because you are too emotional, right? So, and and that's, this was just five years ago. And so I said, wow, really? So what, what, what's emotional? Give me an example. And that was what I was sharing with you a second ago. He couldn't, it all boiled down to passion, but it was a level of passion he wasn't comfortable with. It was his level of comfort. Had nothing to do really with an inadequacy of mine. It was his level of comfort. So then when I resigned to go be a vice president, of which he said I'd never be, he was in my office and he said, Linda, you know, are you sure you want to go? We're loving what you do. And I said, Dave, I said, no, I don't think I'll stay here because I'm too passionate, I'm too emotional. <laughs> And, you know, I'm going to go off and be that vice president that you said I would never be, you know. And he was, I'll never forget, sitting in Chicago, he's standing there, so I'm packing up. And, and he was like, he's like, yeah, so obviously I was wrong. I said, yeah. I said, I said, but, that, I said but that's cool, though. I'm good. I said, you know, that's what I said. But I also said to him, I said, but I, I would offer this to you. I said, because when I came here, I was the first woman in this role. You have other women here, and there'll be potential for more women to come. You need to shift your par you need to shift your par your paradigm, shift that thinking, uh, because you, you, you're off. You know, you're completely off. So that's what I would offer. You know, I you got to check yourself, obviously, but if you are just no different than your counterpart, and if it's happened to be a male counterpart, I wouldn't necessarily change who, who I am. But you you know, you've got to have that level of comfort. You have to have built that trust. You have to have had the wins. You know, all those things that give you the comfort to stand in who you are. Um, I would say when I was challenged with that, uh, and I've been told that too, that I, my strategy was always to have data, to always have, you know, data not only from our customers that said, you know, what this particular, if I was defending a person to get recognition or whatever, I would just come armed with data all the time. Um, the other side of that is lately since I've been a coach, I've, um, had kind of the hat on, you know, capitalizing on some of the neurosciences out there that describes, you know, like when, you know, when you get a little anxious about things and you want to make sure that um, you're not demonstrating anger too much because, you know, the other issue that I've had to combat is angry black woman. Um, but, but there is some learning in that world of you know understanding the works of your brain right when your amygdala hijacks your brain and you can't really get to your executive um, thinking and creativity and innovation and i just i just advise people to just be aware of that because that um you know passion can turn into something else and so if you're just kind of 
in control of what you're saying. And even that examination of angry black female, I mean, I really had to go back and I read this great book, What Do They See When They See You Coming? And in this particular case, it was another woman who didn't say those words to me, but her, she reacted that way to me. And then I had to really think about myself. I was taking her problems all the time. She did hear only negative things. So in, in that awareness, I had to change the script. And, it, and that could not be the only time that I talked to her. It could, you, you know, I'd sit in meetings and defend bonuses, just like what you were saying, and it would be passionate, and I felt like I had to be like the guys because that's how they got stuff done. And, um, but that necessarily wasn't me. And so that, you know, my strategy, again, was to come armed with data and just kind of lay it all out. So. so we have five minutes left. I do want to leave some time because I'm not sure if someone's coming in this room or not, if you want to engage one-on-one -on -one with any of us. So I will take one more question and then we'll end our discussion. Okay. Over the years, we've had EEO initiatives. Then it went from EEO initiatives to diversity initiatives. Now we're struggling over, is it inclusion and diversity, or diversity and inclusion? And it just feels so political. So... That's her. <laughs> Well, what are your thoughts? Has adding the word inclusion, and you can tell by my voice how I feel about it, but do you think it's political or do you think it's really helping? So I'll, I'll take a tackle and Simma and Burge. Um, don't kill me, but um, <laughs> the, 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 the e equal employment opportunity is, is something that's mandated by law. And uh, I think that what, what over the years, I think we've tried to come up with a way to make it not so negative-minded and it be a positive thing. And I think that's where they went to the diversity and inclusion. So basically what we're saying is that we may be a diverse entity, uh, we may be diverse, but we're not all-inclusive. Mm -hmm. uh, one of my employees said that, you know, we're invited to the party, but sometimes we're not asked to dance. So that's the part, and the EEO part is just so legal and formal. And, and one gentleman told me this, you know, EEO forces, e, the Equal Employment Opportunity Rules or, or law forces an individual to say you either sexist or you are racist or whatever. And you may not be any of those things. It may be you're just a bad boss. And, you, you know, and so if it doesn't fit in those categories, then it doesn't go through as a, as a, a formal issue. So they're trying to get to a place where they can address those things without calling a person a sexist or bigot, bigot or someone who don't like your religion. So I think that's what has morphed over the years that we're trying to make e e equal employment opportunity more user friendly or and by coming with the diversity issue uh, where you handle it. You look at the spinoff of EEO, you come, now we have an anti-harassment program. Now we have a sexual harassment program. Uh, you know, they're spinning off things from EEO because EEO is a long, drawn-out process. They even have a thing called alternative dispute resolution where we're trying to get things fixed fast. EEO, again, it, it, if you go to the tr traditional process, it's so long and it keeps, it, it's burdensome. And then guess what? You got a disgruntled employee and you got a boss who don't have an employee working for them in that process. But now what we're going to try to do is you may not be racist, you may not be sexist, but you're a harasser. So we want to get it fixed fast and get those things. I think that's why we're trying to trying to get a sweet spot. Can th yeah. that make sense? Yeah, I agree. We have, I just got yeah. flagged. We're going to have to end with. Go ahead, Terry. You want to wrap us up? 
So I do think it's an evolution, and I do think corporate America is probably the lead in the evolution because the E in it, the equity piece is. So I invite you to the dance, and then inclusion, I ask you to dance, and then equity is I'm playing your music at the dance, That's right? It. And so, we, you know, I don't know that the government has morphed into that yet, but there's certainly some private sector entities that have. And so I think it's you know, who knew that equity was going to be an issue when the EEO laws came out? Right, so right. it's an evolution. And I, I don't think it's political, but I think it's, you know, awareness of, of what's going on in the world. And I do think it's necessary. Yeah, I agree with the panel. It's not political. It, and it's digestible now. It's something that people can sit at the table and have a conversation about and do it without any, um, any feeling of, Finger pointing or name calling, and you know, putting us in an, putting anyone in an uncomfortable place. So I agree. With that, it's been a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed the discussion. And please feel free. I'm sure these ladies have uh, some time afterwards. If you want to meet one on one with any of us before we leave, please feel free. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Organizational Politics from Venus. Developing power and influence from a woman's perspective. A professional development seminar. Featuring founder of the Above Average School, Terry Williams. Vice President of Global Quality for Meritor Inc., Linda Taliaferro. And acting director of the Office of Diversity and Leadership for the U.S. Army Materiel Command, Paula Taylor. If you have enjoyed this presentation, be sure to attend the Women of Color STEM Conference. For more information on how you, your company, or organization can take part, visit www.womenofcolor.net. For college students, contact us at 410-244-7101.